Why I'm Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. The debate over abortion rights has been looming in this country for years. And last week, the U.S. Supreme Court officially reversed Roe versus Wade, declaring the right to abortion no longer exists. The case they were hearing is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, where the court considered whether abortions performed before viability were unconstitutional. So to make sense of the abortion debate and what this decision means for the states, the legitimacy of the court, for women everywhere, and the upcoming 2022 elections, I've invited Dr. Todd Curry and Dr. Michael Fix to join me on the show today. Todd Curry is an associate professor of political science at the University of Texas at El Paso. His primary area of research is state Supreme Courts, where he advances an audience-based approach to explaining how judges behave on and off the bench. His recent book with Michael Romano, Creating the Law, State Supreme Court Opinions and the Effect of Audiences, examines how judges craft their opinions differently depending on if their constituency is watching or not. Michael Fix is an associate professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of Political Science at Georgia State University. His primary area of research is state high courts with specific focus on the relationship between state high courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. His recent book with Benjamin Casal, U.S. Supreme Court Doctrine in the State High Courts from Cambridge in 2020, explores how state courts use or ignore the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. So thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you, Heather. Thanks, Heather. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about, kind of unpacking this decision by the court and where their legitimacy stands. And uh, Mike, I'm actually going to start with a quote from the beginning of your book to kick this off. And, and you state, and this is a quote actually that is both from you and then also from Payne versus Tennessee in 1991. As the Supreme Court itself has stated, stare decisis is the preferred course because it promotes the even-handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal principles, fosters reliance on judicial decisions, and contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process. So my first question, and, and Michael, if you want to take this question, that's great. It's what is stare decisis? And has it now been thrown out? Well, sure. So so to, to start with, to define terms, right? Stare decisis um, is, is legal Latin, right? It, it, effectively means to let the decision stand. And there's two ways to think of stare decisis, right? And so the the first way is the the required obedience of a lower court to a decision of a higher court. That's what we call vertical stare decisis. There's no question um, that that is still what it has always been. Lower courts are bound to the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, lower federal courts anyway. With state courts, it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, they're only bound specifically with respect to the U.S. Constitution. Um, and uh, chapter two of, of my book, we, we go through an entire history of precedent and stare decisis. As far as 
whether starring decisis applies to the Supreme Court itself, the court has told us um, throughout its history that that exactly as 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 you um, as you quoted our books quoting of of Payne versus Tennessee that stare decisis is the best course of action for for several reasons. Now that doesn't mean that the Supreme Court has ever uh, considered itself bound to its own decisions. In that sense, the Dobbs decision is not remarkable. The Supreme Court has always said that it has the ability to reverse its own precedents, and it has always been willing to do so. Um, what makes the Dobbs decision remarkable in this sense is it is the first time in history that the Supreme Court has completely done away with a right, a fundamental right created by one of its own precedents over 50 years before. That's never happened before. The court has undermined rights um, that it has expanded on, but it has never completely done away with them. Now, it's correct that this decision, you have justices who are sitting on the court who technically lean politically in the same way that prior justices have leaned, and yet we've had a different decision this time, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this had been a strategy from the GOP starting as early as Sandra Day O'Connor's appointment in the early 80s, um, that the goal of overturning Roe uh, was seen as the litmus test um, for judges who were going to be put on the United States Supreme Court by the GOP. But they simply hadn't been successful. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor didn't quite behave the way that um, Republicans thought that she would. And as early, as soon as two years ago, um, in, in June Medical, Justice Roberts upheld the Roe precedent um, and struck down a Louisiana uh, restrictive abortion law. But what has changed is the judges on the court and the ideology of those judges. And while they're from the same one could consider party, um, their jurisprudence or the way that they approach these decisions is just systematically different. Now, Todd, in some of your work, you look at representation within the court or within courts, really, because you're looking at more than just the Supreme Court. What what does that look like for the Supreme Court? Who would you say justices are representing when they're making decisions? So, yes, my I've been working on this this area with numerous co-authors, looking at the idea that all judges in the United States system that that state, federal, you even the U.S. Supreme Court that they're all representatives, and they all behave in a representative fashion. But at the U.S. Supreme Court, with things like life tenure. And, and no hope of going to a higher position or another position, um, judges aren't nearly as restricted as judges at other levels of the judiciary. And so what it means for US Supreme Court judges to be representative is that they get to choose the audience that they want to represent, that they get to look and seek approval from groups that they want approval from. And in the context of the current U.S. Uh, Supreme Court, at least for really the three newest justices who joined it, that's Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett, uh, their audience that they are seemingly wanting to court in most cases, especially in, in the current case that overturned Roe, um, 
would be groups like the Federalist Society, which is an organization of conservative um, lawyers that have existed since the early 1980s, that their approval that they're seeking is from that group. And so they're behaving as representatives, but not representatives of a constituency or representatives of a broad public, but representatives of this movement that has gained a lot of steam and a lot of prominence really within the past 20 years. And so the decision in, in Dobbs is really the, it's the completion of that process that these judges are acting um, exactly like representatives. You can see it clearly in how they write, especially in the Dobbs decision, that there is a degree of approval seeking going on. And by them putting down this decision, by them issuing the Dobbs decision, um, they've kind of lived up to that representative enterprise. Yeah, I think that it, it just looking across the country, looking on anyone's Facebook feed, anyone's Twitter feed, Looking into survey data, they're definitely not representing the American public in this decision. No, absolutely not. They're, but we also shouldn't expect them to. And I think that's that's kind of the the, the linchpin for for the audience theory that I put forward is that if you're expecting the United States Supreme Court to be representative of the United States voters, constituency, nation as a whole, that's simply not going to happen, and never going to happen, but they will be representative of the legal theory and group that helped get them to the bench and really, in the instances of these three young justices, really helped raise and socialize them in the movement. Um, And they're absolutely representative of that, even if in the broader sense of the United States, that movement is out of step with what the majority would want. Now, I was thinking about the fact that the leaked draft came out, you know, let's say, I don't even remember how many weeks ago it was. It's something like five, six weeks ago. Um, And the the leaked draft, when I talk about this with my students back then, they were like, well, perhaps that draft was leaked to help these individuals at the state level create policies that could then be put on the books regarding abortion, just be ready to go. Once the once the real decision was was made, I think, though, that not only could it have affected that, it could have also could have affected liberal individuals in states getting policies in order to protect privacy. Are we I feel like that, unfortunately, now everyone is scrambling, even though they've had some time to sit with this draft. Would would you agree with that, Michael? Yeah, I think I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think everyone was preparing on both sides, but I think they would have done that despite the leak draft. I, I think everyone knew that there was a good chance that this was that this was when when Roe was going to die. Um, I think we knew that when when Amy Coney Barrett was was confirmed, and even without Roberts, there was a five justice majority to overturn Roe. So I, I think we knew that despite the the league draft, and I think we had plenty of time uh, on both sides to prepare. But but still, I, we can't underestimate how how unprecedented this was. As, as I said earlier. Um, the Supreme Court has never fully done away with a 
fundamental right that had been in place for over 50 years. This has just never happened. So now, no matter how much preparation there was, there was no way to be truly prepared for this. So everybody, um, from lawyers to doctors to medical clinics, academics, um, we're all struggling to catch up and figure out what's going to happen next. So let me pause for just a moment and reintroduce everyone who's on the show today. Hi, if you've just tuned in, this is Red, White, and Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. I've been chatting with two experts on judicial politics, Todd Curry and Michael Fix. Todd Curry is an associate professor of political science at the University of Texas at El Paso, and his primary area of research is state Supreme Courts, where he advances an audience-based approach to examining how judges behave on and off the bench. And Michael Fix is an associate professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of Political Science at Georgia State University. His primary area of research is state high courts with a specific focus on the relationship between state high courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. Todd, I want to come back to you with that last question I asked. I mean, I've been getting irritated just thinking that we've had time. We've had time. We knew this was happening. I'm not seeing a lot happening at the state level. I mean, I'm I'm seeing things happening at the state level that is, I guess you could say, anti-abortion. I haven't seen a lot that would be pro-privacy. Am I right in my assessment? Am I missing something? I mean, to, to some extent, yes. Um, I mean, we can mention the trigger laws that are in place. Uh, there's a suit going forth by the Missouri um, Attorney General in an attempt to overturn a state-based privacy ruling they had that incorporated the rights to abortion. Iowa recently did away, the Supreme Court recently did away with their privacy-based abortion protections. So if you were to look uh, in in sort of a a broad spectrum, it absolutely seems like there is more movement um, to to limit access to abortion than there is to increase it. But uh, there has absolutely been movement within states um, to expand, not necessarily expand, but to protect the right and protect access. Um, we can look at California and see what the governor has been doing there in terms of protecting access. Um, just yesterday in my neighboring state of New Mexico, the governor signed a protection to make sure that not only was the right protected, but also provided resources to medical providers for what they perceive to be an increase of out-of-state travelers who would be going there to access the right. So I I would say that states who fall on both sides of the political spectrum have been moving, but when when we're weighing what the difference is, um, in conservative states, they're absolutely limiting or eliminating the right. And that's much more noticeable than the states that are going, yeah, the right still exists and here's how we're going to manage to protect it. Um, so it, yes, there's movement on both sides, but one side is clearly um, much more visible. So, so the other thing, though, is a lot of the movement we're seeing by groups that want to defend abortion rights have to go through state judicial mechanisms, right? Because if they want the recognition of a right to an abortion um, covered under the state constitution where it has not previously been, well, the judicial process is a long process as opposed to the legislative process 
that the anti-abortion side could go through to get these trigger laws in place awaiting the overturning of Roe. That could be done quickly in a legislative session versus the judicial process, which can drag out for years. And we have already seen state uh, lawsuits filed in state courts challenging the constitutionality under the state constitution of some of these abortion bans. Louisiana, Utah, Mississippi, lawsuits are already filed. And and I think there's a few more. Those are the three I can remember right off. Um, and right now here in Georgia, our it's not a trigger law, but we have a, a six-week abortion ban that's, that's on hold in the 11th Circuit. A, a temporary injunction was issued awaiting the Dobbs ruling. So as soon as the 11th Circuit removes that temporary injunction, that'll be in place here. De facto, it, it'll function like a trigger law. Um, we've just got to wait out the time. But as soon as that happens, I'm sure there's going to be lawsuits filed in Georgia state courts challenging that under the Georgia Constitution. So that's one big difference as well of the timing. That's why you you feel like you're seeing more action immediately on the anti-abortion side than, than on the pro-choice side. That's a great point. Now, Michael, obviously the Supreme Court would probably think of itself as having the last word in everything and that state courts have to just sort of take what they say and go with it, as we were discussing early on. But that's not always what happens, right? Like there are moments when the state courts say, well, it's fine for federal, but the state's different. Well, sure, exactly, right? Um, constitutional rights are like a house. Um, our rights that, under the federal constitution are, are the floor of the house. They're the, the minimum, the bare minimum amount of rights protection that we can have. Um, our states can, in their constitutions and through the high court interpretation of their constitutions, expand individual rights as much as they want. So they can put a ceiling on rights that's much higher than what the federal constitution is interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court grants. And, and this is a perfect avenue for that to happen. Right. You have some states like Montana that have an explicit provision in the state constitution protecting the right to privacy. The Montana Supreme Court has already recognized that the right to an abortion is contained by that constitutional right to privacy. Now, the state attorney general is asking the Montana Supreme Court to essentially reverse course and overturn their prior decision. But as of now, that explicit constitutional protection um, is there. Here in Georgia, um, which is a, a rather conservative state, the Georgia Supreme Court was the first court anywhere in the country to recognize a constitutional right to privacy. Way back in 1905, the Georgia Supreme Court held that the right to be let alone was protected by the Georgia Constitution, the first recognition of, of a fundamental right to privacy anywhere in the country. So our right to privacy here under the Georgia Constitution is much stronger than it ever was under the federal Constitution. So, so these state constitutions offer avenues for an expansion of rights, um, regardless of what the Supreme Court does. Yeah, because it seems like Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, was saying that like that right just isn't really there in the Constitution, uh, the U.S. Constitution. It's just not present. 
Um, so Todd, I wanna turn back uh, and ask you a question about the legitimacy of the court. We hear this thrown around all the time, the legitimacy, the legitimacy. There, it, it, it's no longer legitimate. What does that mean and why is that important? So legitimacy is just the feeling within society that the institution is the correct institution to make that decision. It's not necessarily an agreement with the decision. It's not that I agree with the decision that was handed down. It's that I respect that the institution has the authority to issue that decision. And so when we talk about attacks on judicial legitimacy, what we're, what we're in essence saying is that more and more Americans are feeling as though the court is not a legitimate institution or the correct institution to issue these decisions. They don't respect the decisions by the very nature of they don't respect the institution. Um, we've oftentimes in the field of judicial politics recognized that the United States Supreme Court is the most legitimate institution in the United States. And that when comparing it with the presidency and when comparing it with Congress. And that's always been sort of awkward because the argument of why the presidency and why Congress is legitimate is they're legitimate because a majority of the people agreed with selecting those individuals for office. That's where their legitimacy comes from. But on the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court's legitimacy comes from the degree to which the American public feels that they're legitimate, that there is no electoral connection to the United States Supreme Court. And so the justices on the court have explicitly, in many instances, talked about the need to keep the institution itself perceived as legitimate. Like they have to do that because the only way that the Supreme Court can get anything done is if it's viewed as a legitimate institution. Um, I, I've, I've often said that the currency of the court is its legitimacy, that it only has so much legitimacy it can spend and still be considered an institution that's able to make these decisions. Now, if the Dobbs decision was isolated, let's say that in terms of this term, that the Dobbs decision was the, um, was the outstanding decision and everything else kind of you know, wasn't nearly as controversial. We wouldn't be having a discussion about the court's legitimacy. It would be one decision that sort of you know, stood out as being odd. But in the wake of uh, the decisions in terms of religious freedom in decisions in wake of Miranda, um, a lot of the decisions that, that, that they've made this term don't strike a chord with what the majority of the public generally wants. And while the Supreme Court is still seen as that pinnacle legitimate institution, there are a lot of self-inflicted wounds this year that may play out. And when the court loses its legitimacy, well, the calls to let's put more members on the court or let's curtail the court's jurisdiction, um, or just ignore the decisions they make completely, once the court is seen as an illegitimate institution, the other two branches of government will step up and do something uh, because that's the only protection the court has. The only protection it has its is its legitimacy. And when it loses it, I'm, we're all gonna wait to see what happens if that comes to pass. Yeah, one of those justices during the hearing portion of this case, uh, Justice Kagan, 
said that um, the principle is critical to, quote, prevent people from thinking that this court is a political institution that will go back and forth depending on what part of the public yells loudest and preventing people from thinking that the court will go back and forth depending on changes to the court's membership. And so there are people who are saying this is a, this is this is absolutely because you've changed the membership and it is political now. It's no longer, you know, not, and we can debate whether it has always been a real political institution as well. So my final question today, and this is for both of you, is kind of like, what's the next step here? Like, there are a lot of women who are, you know, I was just reading in the New York Times, Washington Post, different places. Anxiety is very high. Women are thinking about where to live, where to go to school, what, how to like, if, if they get in a situation where they need to get an abortion, where do they go to seek that abortion? There's just so much uncertainty. What would you tell people is like the next step? And furthermore, is this even going to affect things this year in the election? You want to take this one, Mike, in the beginning? Uh, well, I'm not going to election prognosticate. That's, that's too far outside of, of what I do. But the impact is going to reverberate, right? Um, Roe versus Wade was in many ways one of the best things to happen to the Republican Party in the last 50, in the last 50 years. Roe versus Wade galvanized the base of the Republican Party on, on social issues, um, whereas it had largely been, uh, been, been a party held together by economic issues really prior to that. But, but it galvanized it, it brought the, the, the religious right um, into uh, being a major player in the Republican Party, which brought a lot of voters and a lot of money. And so, you know, overturning Roe has been a continual thing that the Republicans could 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 gather money on and and uh, guarantee voters. Dobbs could be the same thing for the Democratic Party because there is going to be a lot of backlash to the Dobbs decision. We're already seeing it. Um, and it could be the issue that galvanizes Democratic voters and allows Democratic candidates to fundraise for, for as long as it's in place. And in terms of activism, so what steps should individuals take? Um, well, uh, Mike already touched on it. First off, vote. But the, let's be honest. Um, Democrats have seen this coming for 50 years um, and they didn't do anything. And the first way that I was notified that the Democratic Party realized that the Dobbs decision was handed down is I received a text message on my phone asking me to donate money. And that's not actually like change. That's not fighting. That's it's not it's we're going to do electoral stuff, which is what we always do. So speaking to individuals who actually want to engage in change, at the federal level, I don't want to say give up, but you're going to be spinning your wheels. In order for Congress to act, the filibuster has to go away, and absolutely no one has signaled that they're willing to do that. And I just don't see it as a possibility. Sure, we can impeach judges, but you know that's never happened. Um, we could pack the court, but again, we'd have to deal with the filibuster and political consequences. So at the federal level, just highly unlikely that we're going to see any movement. What we should do is turn to the states. Um, and there, there are a few ways that we can do that. One, 
most states make it exceedingly easy to amend their constitutions. Like this is not a high bridge to pass. At the federal level, it's you know insurmountable. Uh, but at the state level, it, it's relatively easy. Um, and movements to incorporate a right to privacy within the constitution, um, there, there's, there's possible movement there in a lot of states. Um, and then once you get that in the constitution, you have that in the constitution, what you need are defenders of that. And that is where state judges come in. And the good news about nearly all state judges in the United States is they have to face the voters. That most state high court judges in the United States are elected and you can remove them if you don't agree with the decisions they make. Simply something that's not available at the federal level. So for activists, my, my urge is to take a tool out of the GOP's playbook, and that is focus on the states. Look to the states, win at the states, and once you win at the state level, actually do something with it, which the GOP has been, I mean, that's been their playbook since the early 80s, is we're going to win over school boards, and we're going to start from the ground up and build this party in that way, and they've been very successful with it. it there's absolutely nothing that says that the Democrats can't do the exact same thing. And so while we all think of the Supreme Court as this defender of rights, and that's what it exists to do, that's not this court. That is us reading into the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s court, something that isn't true from the 2020 court. And the strategy because of that needs to change. And states and state courts and state constitutions are much more amenable to that change than the federal government and the U.S. Supreme Court will be. That is excellent advice. So everyone listening, we need to be active at our state level. We need to start thinking about how to impact state politics and move forward on privacy rights within state constitutions and hold our judges accountable. Thank you both for being on the show today. This has been great. Fabulous. Uh, And thanks to everyone for listening. Again, this is Red, White, and Confused. If you miss any piece of this broadcast, you can listen again on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.